Hi guys, I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. Welcome to the Goop Podcast. Every Thursday, Goop editors will be sitting down with provocative thinkers, industry disruptors, and culture changers. I'll take turns interviewing barrier-breaking guests as we talk about shifting old paradigms and starting new conversations. Today's guest is Audrey Gelman, co-founder and CEO of The Wing, a radical women's-only co-working and community space. The Wing already has a few locations in New York City and D.C. and is quickly expanding around the U.S. and into Canada and the U.K. Before opening The Wing, Audrey worked in political and public affairs. She's been named one of Fast Company's most creative people in business and to Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30. We are really seeking community um, in our workplaces and not in the sense of like drinks after work or conversations at the water cooler, but atmospheres that feel creatively inspiring and supportive and affirming. Elise Lunin, our chief content officer here at Goop, sat down with Audrey to talk about how she carved out a niche for a women's club in this highly charged cultural moment, the ensuing pushback, and what she's learned about scaling a business along the way. The hardest part, you know, is really, I think, the very beginning. You have an idea and it's very hard to have the courage to even like say it out loud and tell someone in your life that you have an idea let alone going out and standing in front of like rooms of guys in suits and asking them for millions of dollars. It's incredibly intimidating. After the conversation, I'll be doing a quick round of Ask Me Anything. If you've got a burning or totally random question you want me to answer, hit us up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. Now let's get to Elise and her interview with Audrey Gelman. Take us back to the beginning and what it, when you were first conceiving of The Wing... What did it look like? And how has it evolved? So the the spark of the idea for The Wing um, really came from women's history. So between the years of 1890 and 1920, there were actually 5,000 physical women's clubs that existed in the U.S. And I took, you know gender studies, women's history classes in college and had never learned about them. And their, their sort of history and their impact um, were very undertold. And, you know, the impact that they did have was um, that they were a huge part of ushering in the suffrage movement and serving as sort of a gathering space for the overall advancement of women in this country. And so my co-founder and I were very inspired um, by the history of those women's clubs. And our idea was really to resurrect that concept, but for contemporary women. And the difference between women today and women 100 years ago is that women today work and have careers. And so that's really how we envisioned that the wing would be used, um, at least during the day. And that, that is how it's used. It's really a workspace for women. Um, and you see you know, hundreds of women on their laptops taking meetings, hatching plans. And speaking of hatching plans, your timing, I'm sure, wasn't intentional in terms of what's happened culturally in the last 18 months. You probably thought you were opening the wing to a, a different slice of, of political life. How has that sort of changed your mandate? Me Too, Trump, like everything that's sort of collectively happening. It seems like women do want to meet. Yeah, I mean, I think that women are using their voices in in powerful and profound ways. Um, and I think, in you know, in a lot of ways, the ground started shifting beneath our feet. 
we, you know, we had this idea, um, but we envisioned it debuting in a time where, you know, that we, we would refer to as like the golden age of women in power. We opened in October 2016, and the election took place, you know, a couple weeks later. And, you know, I think we were betting on, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton presidency, and we were looking forward to the idea of opening in Washington in a world where, you know, um, we had the first woman president presiding over the the Capitol. Um, And obviously, everything changed overnight, and that led to us, you know, piling onto buses at four in the morning and going out to the Women's March and then watching again the the sort of crescendo of the Me Too moment and of Time's Up and um, of everything else that's transpired has been incredibly moving. And again, purely coincidental. I think we, we did really believe that women needed and deserved space of their own um, and spaces where they could come together and express themselves, exchange ideas and, you know, build solidarity. But we didn't really realize how much they needed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I feel like you guys are now sort of in the center of that conversation and a business that's, I guess, probably not unique anymore. But it's it's interesting to think about the convergence of politics with business now and how the two used to be so distinct. And now it's part like your value system is sort of part of your business statement. And how do you think about that as things start to sort of level out and it feels like everyone's finding a new ground and you're expanding across the country. Do you feel like the wing can become a place, sort of a central meeting place for people of like all political parties? Is that a goal? Is that something you even think about? You know, it is. And and I think to your question about how sort of politics and, and business are commingling in new ways. You know, it's it's been interesting to see businesses like Patagonia, which was a brand and a business that I've always really looked up to, take the step to sue the president this year over Bears Ears and over environmental concerns. And, you know, I think what what at least was reported was that they saw their their best day in sales ever um, the same day that they did that. So um, I think that consumers are are passionate and want to support businesses that align with their values. For me, you know, I did not grow up wanting to be a business owner. My my parents do not have a business background. They're, you know, sort of left of Trotsky. And I, you know, I, I, saw, I saw people who went into business as like, you know, sharks on Wall Street or whatever. And so for me, it has been um, a struggle to hold myself accountable and make sure that um, I'm, you know, running my business in, in a way that feels um, ethically and politically, sort of up to my own personal values and standards, and um, you know, and I, I think that part of that is not having to be neutral. Um, I think that you know, uh, it's something that that you, has been sort of an unspoken rule in in like the business world or in, for brands that they always have to be neutral. And you know, I just I don't accept that or believe that it's true. That said, you know, we have really smart and inspiring women who identify as Republicans, um, who have come and spoken at the wing, who are members of the wing. Um, And we definitely embrace, you know, diversity of thought and perspective. But I think that people support the brand because they feel like, you know, what, what we stand for is coming from an authentic place. My background is in politics. And so it would really be hard for me to not have a, a political point of view. Yeah, and I think what's what's interesting or what I hope is happening is that after this sort of wave of this massive 
just freak out on all sides that people are starting to sift through it and figure out what issues are pertinent to their lives. You know, things like the environment, women's rights are not, um, you know, moral issues that have been claimed by by various political parties. I think we're all realizing these unite us. They're not necessarily, they've become political and maybe they shouldn't be. And hopefully we can all gather around issues rather than, or we can start to sift the issues from the politics. You know, I was in, I went to the wing this morning, actually. Cool. And it's beautiful and light-filled and and so cool. I can't wait for you to open in L.A. And I know you're expanding internationally. Like, when you think about the wing in Toronto, the wing in London, which I know is coming on your roadmap, how do you think about taking it and do you change it for the culture? Do you, what what's the thinking there? You know, so far, and and we've just opened, you know, our first non-New York City market in Washington. And, you know, there are definitely some differences in, you know, what members are looking for or looking to get out of membership at the wing. But in in many ways, it's really the same. I think that women are looking for community. Um, I think that the, you know, um, especially for millennials, like we don't go, and this is supported by, you know, statistics and studies that have been done, but we're not going to church and synagogue and to mosques in the same way that our parents and certainly our grandparents did. And, you know, we're obviously living smartphone-driven lives, and I think that technology has really, you know, it's made us more globally connected than ever before, but actually more locally isolated and I think there's a lot of loneliness and there's a lot of personal isolation that people feel. And I think that um, a common theme that we see from women who are joining the wing, whether they're in Manhattan or Brooklyn or Washington, D.C., or the women who've reached out to us from, you know, places like Duluth or, you know, Latvia all over the world, is the hunger for community and to find like-minded people in this case, you know, um, women and and. Um, individuals who don't identify in the gender binary um, and to to be amongst them and to, you know, create relationships in real life. So I think that, you know, we'll always have, you know, the culture and the programming and certain amenities differ from location to location. But I do think fundamentally we're always looking to fulfill the same need for all of our members. I was amazed by the calendar on the wall. You have Diane Feinstein, you have Robin Wright, you have incredible roster of speakers. Have you thought about ways of taking the programming beyond the physical? I know it's it, it's amazing that it's dedicated to the physical because as you said, like so much of our lives exists online. And I think social media in general can be like so alienating, but are you are you thinking about ways to telegraph what you're doing in the spaces or does that minimize like does that ruin the real life experience? You know, we had um Hillary Clinton come come speak a couple of weeks ago, which was a, a very special experience. Um and we actually live streamed the talk on our Facebook and we had uh over three hundred thousand people tune in to to watch the live stream. And so for you know, for uh a company like ours, you know, we have f- only four spaces open um, and uh, a limit, you know, on how many members we can have. That was really 
powerful and, and, and profound for us. And so, you know, I think that we're looking at um, sort of a variety of ways that we can amplify the conversations that we're having and the women that we're highlighting within our space to a larger audience who may not live in a city where a wing will ever open um, or who just aren't at a point in their lives where they, they need a physical membership to the wing. One effort that's part of that um, is a, a print magazine that we um, that we produce called No Man's Land, and we have our second issue coming out in June. Um, and it's very much a great minds think alike because I, when I saw that Goop was coming out with a print magazine, it was like kismet um, <laughs> because like print is not dead. No, and it's awesome. It's such a powerful and tangible you know, way of, again, like highlighting issues and conversations that that your audience cares about. And so that was our first sort of vehicle for amplifying those conversations beyond our four walls. When you talk about, you talked about your membership and how you have a finite number of, of members, is there a way that you evaluate, like how do you, I would imagine freelance writers are clamoring to join um, screenwriters in LA. How do you keep it diverse? Like, how are you keeping it from just being people who used to work at Condé? <laughs> I mean, that's it's a really good question. And, you know, it was one of the first questions that we grappled with, because I think that one of the value propositions that, you know, that we wanted to offer to members was the opportunity to widen their you know, social spheres, not just see the same women that they see at every industry function. Because a lot of the events that people go to after work are very industry driven. And so you're seeing the same faces. Um, And so for us, you know, we are blessed with the ability to curate our membership base. We have, you know, more demand than we have supply right now. And um, we also have just um, an unbelievable amount of incredible women who are applying for membership. And so for us, it's about making sure that we have a balance in terms of racial and ethnic backgrounds, in terms of age, in terms of profession, um, so that we have, you know, women who are coming from medicine and who are coming from law and who are coming from academia represented in our membership and music and food and all of these things um, and not just only you know freelance writers or novelists and we certainly have a lot of you know women in media and women who are founding their own startups or in tech but it, you know for us we we want to ensure that you're going to sit next to someone you know who's um, a classical violinist at the Metropolitan Opera, um, and also is um, a calligrapher, you know, um, on the weekends, and is going to just widen your horizons um, to, you know, just all of the amazing talents that women have. It's a really sweet space. I was struck by how intimate it is as well, and that people who were clearly didn't necessarily know each other were sharing couches, were sort of clustered together, just tapping away or having coffee. It's nice that it it's not you're not sort of put into like a library like corral. So I want to switch to you a little bit. You left Oberlin after two years to go work on Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008. Yes. How did that happen? And were your parents pushing you? Were they what happened? My first year out of high school, I interned at Meet the Press. Um, I was always like a big political nerd. I actually had like I had been a very passionate Ralph Nader supporter. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I had also just been – I was brought up on the Upper West Side in New York City. It's, like, very, 
you know, left wing political. My my parents were members of a local Democratic club. They used to bring me to meetings. I went to, you know, picket lines and protested things. And it was very much just like in the bloodstream for me growing up. And so I wanted to study politics and um, and I um, got the opportunity to work in Hillary Clinton's Senate office as an intern and then on her campaign. And, you know, at that point, I think it, everyone believed <laughs> that she was also going to be the next president. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to, to you know, just like be the first person in, the last person out and, and get the opportunity to just be like adjacent to the action to get to sort of hover around and, and watch it all happen with the hopes that maybe I could go work in the White House as a junior aide. Um, and so school just became very unimportant. Like I started drafting her scheduling advisories and then, you know, supporting on press releases and patching her into radio interviews and like different um, sort of menial but very meaningful um, to me tasks for the press office. And yeah, it was just like the most exciting, thrilling, exhilarating experience ever. And, you know, that primary took a, a direction that, you know, our campaign didn't expect. Um, and so I think that part of politics is also just like getting like understanding that like there's a 50 percent chance you're going to lose and um, nursing your wounds and sort of like picking yourself up and, and staying engaged. After that experience, I was ready to come back to New York um, and finish school here. And so, yeah, I kind of remembered I was a college student uh, all the, after the dust settled. <laughs> What did you learn from Hillary? You know, I did not get, like, you know, a lot of FaceTime with her. I was only, I was 20. Um, I was 19 and 20 when I worked on that campaign. But, you know, one of the things that I observed, one of the big jobs I had was that I was a very fast typer and that I had to transcribe all of her interviews. So literally in real time, she would be doing an interview with, like, the Des Moines Register. And I would be listening and would just have to be, like, typing and transcribing in real time. And so I would hear almost every single, you know, interview that she would have, which would be, you know, sometimes dozens. And the thing that really struck me was just how, you know, she remembered everything. She remembered every single person and she remembered details about them. And just like the, I don't know, it just felt like her her capacity for I don't know, just that, like her her mind felt limitless and her memory certainly was was limitless. And it was incredible to to get to be that close at such a young age to, you know, to, to that kind of history. It's also a good lesson that everyone needs to learn how to type. I used to type my dad's medical transcription, mm. which I could do because we had this one. Now I'm dating myself, but we had a computer game. <laughs> it's the only game we had. And it was a typing track game. So I would just do it for hours. I can type like 120 words per minute. Amazing. It's the best life skill. It really is. <laughs> Everyone learn how to type. So thinking about that and, and sort of what you did next, like have you what have you carried with you into launching your own business? When I tried to initially raise some seed capital to start the wing, a lot of people, you know, have said sort of like, Oh, you didn't go to business school, you didn't go to, you know, Harvard Business School or Columbia Business School and you have kind of a, a non-traditional background for a founder. And what I would tell them, and I think it's 100% true, is that working on a political campaign, um, which I did then and then I continue to do, you know, prepares you, A, for anything, and, and B, specifically really prepares you to start your own business um, because you have to be 
um, advancing a message and building a movement and raising capital and having sort of a, you know, a, a, a game plan of how things roll out and putting out fires every five minutes and um, an appetite for adrenaline and like moving fast. We'll have more of Elise's conversation with Audrey Gelman in a minute. In the meantime, let's talk about one of our partners. Despite my best intentions, I've never been able to find time in the morning to make myself lunch before work. This invariably means that at 2 p.m. I'm starving and reaching for a takeout menu. It hasn't been great for my waistline or my wallet. I was thrilled to learn about Freshly, a meal delivery service prepared by chefs that offers lunch, dinner, and even breakfast. It's all made with no refined sugars, artificial preservatives, or hydrogenated oils. They also have a lot of gluten-free and virtuous options, so you won't feel overstuffed. Even their indulgent chicken parm is served with a side of broccoli. Essentially, the way it works is that you sign up, pick the number of meals you'd like each week, and then they make it all to order. It's pre-portioned and then shipped. All you have to do is pop it into the microwave and you're good to go. So for the time starved amongst us, it's a great way to skip lunchtime takeout or at least put a nice meal on the table for dinner. Go to Freshly.com goop to get $25 off your first order of six meals. That's $25 off plus free shipping at Freshly.com goop. Okay, let's get back to our chat with Audrey Gelman. What has been the biggest hurdle and slash stumbling block that you've encountered so far? The hardest part, you know, is really, I think, the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I think that you have an idea and it it's very hard to have the courage to even, like, say it out loud and tell someone in your life that you have an idea, let alone going out and standing in front of, like, rooms of guys in suits and asking them for millions of dollars. It's incredibly intimidating. Um, and being told no you know, over and over and over again, leaves can leave anyone demoralized, like even somebody with incredible levels of confidence, um, which I try to project that I have, but like often, you know, don't really have. And yeah, so I think that the hardest part is really the very beginning, because there's just you encounter so much skepticism. And especially for women, I think, who are used to sort of like, self-doubt and like telling ourselves, you know, to sort of shrink our expectations and things like that. It's just a, a a very hard hurdle to get over, the sort of first part of actually putting your idea out there in the world and getting other people to stand behind it. Yeah, it's interesting, too, sort of how education or sort of a lack of a degree comes to play. I mean, that's definitely been a factor for us at Goop. It's something that Gwyneth talks about. One, how quickly she's no longer Gwyneth Paltrow when she's in a room fundraising in Mm -hmm. front of a bunch of VC guys. But also how, yes, it would be great to have an MBA, I'm sure. But at the same time, like the way that the world works now, it's so fast. Like you seem like an established brand, even though it's only been a year and a half, right? That it feels like anything that you even learn is antiquated months later, you know, just because the, the landscape of of how people even consume information is different. So I think that that should not be a limiting factor for anyone because I think it it's, it's not irrelevant. It's certainly helpful, but it's not essential. Yeah, and, like, you can hire people who went to Harvard Business School. Exactly. You, know? <laughs> you can. Like, I think what you can't do is it, you either have the guts or you don't. 
Mm -hmm. um, and you either have like the instinct that you trust and, and you let guide you or you don't. And, and that, I think, is something that you can't replace or hire for, things like that. It's those, those sort of instincts. But, yeah, I mean, those are the things that I've followed. And, and so far, it's, it's, you know, it's led me in the right direction. But I definitely um, held a lot, of, a lot of doubt in the beginning about not having any kind of, you know, classical sort of training in the business world. Is it $150 a month or? $215. $215. Yeah. Which I guess is incredible if that's your rent. Just just to get back to sort of the question around um, ethics and business and wanting to like run a business that lives up to the political and ethical values that you have. The price of the wing is far less than like any other co-working space that exists. Far, far less. Um, and we're actually rolling out scholarship seats, which we're really, really proud of um, and excited about. Um, for women who are sort of working in the nonprofit world or in um, advocacy or even in jobs like, you know, retail, which, you know, we don't have represented as much in our membership ranks. That said, I think it's really important, you know, um, for women business owners to be able to feel assured in the value that they're creating and be able to ask for market rate um, for their product. And I, I think it's really, really important that women you know, remind ourselves of that message because I think it's very easy, um, you know, again, to to want to please everybody. And I think we put sort of un, un, unrealistic standards on women. We want them to be all things to all people. Mm -hmm. um, and nobody is. It's true. Do you think that that's something that, that is uniquely feminine? Do you think that that, I know that that that's something that people talk about with us, like you need to be more accessible. And, and so much of our content is completely free, obviously, and not gated in any way. But it's still something that comes at us. But I don't I don't know if that's ever lobbed at male brands. I think male brands are less vulnerable to it. I think that they're not listening as much or less sensitive to it. And, you know, and I think that but I think it's important, like for me, it's really important to absorb what feels correct and what feels right about certain criticisms, but then also to make sure that I'm separating that from things that I can't fix or maybe outside the, the control of a, a year and a half year old company. I know you guys are moving incredibly fast, and I'm assuming that's demand driven largely by that. And also it feels like this space in particular is drawing a ton of attention. What do you think the future of work is? Is this is this it? If, I mean, there there are a lot of businesses that I think have have like big utopian visions for you know what what the future of work looks like. I think that we are really seeking community um, in our workplaces, and not in the sense of like drinks after work or conversations at the water cooler, but atmospheres that feel creatively inspiring and supportive and affirming. Um, and, you know, so f for us, we feel like the wing fits really neatly into that. And I think that in general, just sort of like the cubicle model certainly is outmoded. I think that, you know, that people are looking to have multiple gigs and, you know, side hustles and things like that. And I think that it's about giving them the platform, you know, to, to express themselves and, and to meet their collaborators. And then finally, I know your business partner had a baby. Yes. So can I make a pitch as well? Like, how about the wing with bouncy castles? 
It's funny uh, that you should say that. <laughs> yes, it, it's uh, my my business partner has a 12 week old, and um, one of the things I was particularly proud of was that we raised our Series B, which is a 32 million dollar round and one of the largest Series B rounds ever raised by women entrepreneurs. Um, while Lauren was eight months pregnant, um, and when we announced the Series B, we actually very intentionally made sure that she was visibly pregnant in all of the photos because we wanted to make sure that, you know, other women could see that, like, you don't have to cover your stomach if you're going into a fundraising meeting or, you know, do the pitch on Skype, you know. (laughs) So, yes, I think that it's been a very eye-opening experience. Um, And one of the things that we're we're working very hard on is how the wing can expand our um, our amenities and value propositions to new moms. So um, much more on that to come. Wait. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining our interview with Audrey Gelman today. Now, on to this week's Ask Me Anything. Angela would like to know the best parenting advice I ever got. I would say the best parenting advice I ever got, and it's the only parenting advice I ever give, is that mother knows best. I really believe that every mother knows instinctually what's best for her child and her family, whether that's everybody sleeping in the same bed or the baby sleeping on in its own crib or sleep training or formula versus breast milk. Mother always knows best. Have a question? Drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for this week's episode of the Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and share with your friends. To keep up with new episodes, just hit subscribe. And for more info, head over to goop.com slash the podcast. See you next week.